Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday Show. I'm your host, Tim Miller. JBL and I get nerdy for you this week. Our guest is Jerusalem Dempsess. She's one of my favorite writers over at The Atlantic. She covers primarily housing and homelessness, but we get into a bunch of other niche policy issues she's been writing about as well. Uh, this one gets pretty wonky, so I'd love you get your all's feedback on it. We want the Sunday interview to be a little change of pace from the rest of the material. I've enjoyed the culture ponds we've done. Amanda Shires was so great. But we figured you guys might be up for some yummy spinach on occasion as well. So let us know. Also, be sure to rate and review us on the podcast app of your choice. Tell your friends. The growth of this pod has been really awesome. Let's keep it rolling. I very much appreciate all of you. Up next is Jerusalem Dempsis. I think you're going to enjoy it. But first, our friends at Acid Tongue. Peace. Hello, welcome to the Sunday Next Level Podcast. I'm here with my BFF, JVL, and somebody I'd really like to be my friend soon, uh, Jerusalem Dempsis. Uh, she's a writer at The Atlantic, and I bet you've seen her writing, even if you don't know it. And I want to start here, uh, Jerusalem. I This is one of those, I think, I feel like it's from the old days, how you found writers you liked. Maybe JVL could tell me about this, um, but I, I would see an article <laughs> I'd like. we pick up our pamphlets on the street, and we look for the names Publius. <laughs> and I click on the article, and I'm like, oh, I like this one. Who's this? And it's like, oh, Jerusalem Dempsis. This person's probably pretty good. And then I click on another one, and I was like, it's Jerusalem Dempsis again. And this happened to me several times, and you just appeared in my, you know, X feed. We're calling it X now. But I know nothing about you. And so I wanted to have you on for this reason because I've loved your writing. And so I, I would like for you to start just by, like, telling us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Um, were you a child prodigy? Like, do you <laughs> and your parents get along? Like, just give us your whole origin story. Okay, so this is like a therapy intake session. Yeah, therapy um, intake. Let's start there. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, so I uh, actually grew up outside D.C. in Maryland, and uh, now I live in D.C., so didn't didn't move too far there. But yeah, I started writing a few years ago at Vox, and it was you know October 2020 when I when I joined Vox, and uh, you know I, I had been interested in housing. I'd studied economics in college, and had really gotten into like labor econ and like mobility research and kind of the you know intersection of like political science and mobility and um, labor economics. And, you know, I'd, I'd come across this piece. I remember it like quite vividly because I think it's actually kind of weird to like remember the thing that started you thinking about everything. <laughs> I think most people have like sort of like, you know, many, many data points they can point to that like lead them to an interest. But I do have this moment where I was a senior in college and um, I read this piece by David Schleicher, who's a Yale law professor called Stuck. And it was about how Americans had stopped moving as much as we used to. And the reason for this was not like, you know, personal preferences had changed, but rather because there were a bunch of different state and local regulation decisions that were being made that made it harder and harder for people to leave and much harder and harder for people to join new communities. And this really struck me. And then I started writing about it at Vox. And of course, October 2020, we're in the middle you of the pandemic. You were reading pandemic. about this in college? This this idea sparked in college? We had a very different yeah. college experience. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, kind not of, everybody wasted their college years the way you did. Okay, so you're just like kind of casually reading some Yale law professor kind of com- commentary I mean, on housing assigned. stock? It, it, was, it was assigned. It was assigned. Oh, it was 
assigned. Class, okay. So. <laughs> all right. I did read some of the assigned reading. Okay. So that, that makes me feel a little better. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, you started writing about housing in 2020, and that was a really a big moment for people who were really trying to understand what had gone wrong. Something that people thought like, okay, LA is expensive. San Francisco is expensive. DC is expensive, but like that, you know, people can still buy like reasonable housing um, in, you know, the suburbs of these areas or, you know, smaller cities, but then it became a national housing crisis. And I think it really sparked a lot of attention towards the underlying issues that we're, um, you know, I've been writing about. So I want to get to housing, but we need to start with one other thing first, if that's okay. And uh, we're going to spend most of the time on housing um, because your stuff on it is so good. But I read when I was preparing for this that uh, you also did something else different for me in college. You were a debate champion, the national number one ranked debater at William & Mary. Uh, uh, Sebastian also is William & Mary. We have some William & Mary. What are you guys like, the lords and the ladies or something? Preposterous like that? Don't you have a ridiculous mascot? No, I don't think so. No? Okay. No, we have the griffin. Oh, you're like the Griffin. Griffin. Okay. Yeah. They just changed it, though. They changed it in the 90s because it used to be um, a Native American. Um, but in order tribe. to appease okay, the, okay. Yeah. It's a different liberal arts school that had the lords and the ladies, and they had to change yeah. it from that, too, because that was a little. Uh, okay, anyway, you're a, you, were the, you were the champion. So I, I'd like to hear a little about this experience. I don't care much about college debate, and, but mm-hmm. there was this very interesting article over in uh, Matt Iglesias' thing by Maya Bodnick, uh, who's awesome. I love her. She's a young woman uh, who's really great. And um, she wrote about how, like, People don't debate anymore, and they're using critics, and it's just nihilism, and it's like people want to ask questions, debate. So, so when you were the champion, did you actually debate on the merits, or when you were asked about things, were you like, no, I want to imagine that, you know, we have a completely different society where the proletariat mm-hmm. has over has been overthrown, et cetera. Oh well, Tim, what would you say if I said that's what I was doing with it? I would love that. End at this point? <laughs> no, no, I would love um, that. Well, I would love to I, know I, your strategy. I, I, yeah. I'm an empty slate here. I did not do I, the only debating Same. I did was after a bong rip in the dorm room. So <laughs> you, uh, I want to hear how the pros did it. Well, I, I did a different sort of debate than I think what um, what Maya is describing in her piece. I, I didn't. Um, I did parliamentary debate, is what we did. Um, which I'm not going to get into the details here because I don't think the audience really cares that much about the <laughs> distinctions between types of college debate. But suffice it to say, we were, um, it had not yet um, reached the parliamentary debate scene, the sort of critiques. And, and just to give a kind of like brief overview of people who aren't aware of this sort of stuff, basically what has happened in policy debate in other areas is that I think it's actually best to think of it as just a innovation for people who are trying to win. Um, and okay. debate changes quite regularly. I think it's something that people don't really understand. Like every five years, people will just like say like, wow, that's not what we used to do. Or like even over the course of their college careers, like the activity changes a lot because it's being constituted by just college students. It's not really like they're like regulations aren't like other people. It's just college students are both the judges and they are the participants. And when they graduate, they completely leave. And so it's almost like there's a lot of churn happening. And so there's a lot of change happening all the time in these spaces. And often the innovations that you see are like people like, like to make a lot out of it because these people who do debate often end up in different areas of, of influence and power, whether it's in media or in government. But I think it's just really a reflection of just like, what is the newest thing that someone has come up with in order to win? And then once that starts losing, they'll come up with a new thing and a new thing and a new thing. And the current thing right now is that instead of responding to, let's say someone says we want to, uh, you know, abolish the student debt, right? Instead of responding to that, you'll instead respond with a pre-written argument about how living in a capitalist society that allocates 
funding for student housing or whatever is unacceptable. And I, I didn't do this. So I'm like making sure. this up, but like basically you make some sort of like larger societal critique um, about the even foundation of having this sort of debate at all. And you move the debate off the original terrain. And so like the point is you're, you're taking your proponents out of their pre-prepared area in order to mess with them. And then they have to respond to something that you have actually come up with and prepared. So it's, it's really, I think something where we're all like trying to make it a larger societal critique, but it's really just kids trying to win a game, you know? So. Got it. It's strategic. It's like magic the gathering, right? <laughs> yeah. Like the new card comes out, the Trump's the old card that used to be the Trump card. But the difference is that nobody writes New York Times pieces about Magic the Gathering and says, <laughs> can you believe the degradation to the sacred sport of the magic? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, but just so your your championship, though, do you get, do you get like a trophy? Like what happened? No, please Did tell you- me it's a belt. Please tell me it's a WWE-style <laughs> belt. And then when you walk in, you the champ carries the belt as they stride in is with that, entrance music. Happen? Because if you yeah. tell me that, I'm just... Man, I am here for everything that comes after. No, there was no belt, unfortunately. Uh. It's just, it's just, a, it's a glass trophy, um, and it's, uh, it's. There's a funny story about the trophies. Actually, is that like one year someone decided they didn't. They thought novices needed to be like freshmen needed to be knocked down a peg, so they didn't give them trophies. They instead made the seniors create hand turkeys for them, and so the novices all came out looking for their victory. And instead of getting trophies, they got hand turkeys. So yeah, it's like a, it's like a student organization. Again, just degradation of the sacred debate. Exactly. Boy, the kids these days, Timothy. Oh. I'm pretty. I'm still. I'm so impressed. Okay, I, I really could do a half hour on this, but I, I guess that's probably yeah, not what you deserve. For. A okay. belt. Um, Thank you. I'll buy. I one. do think. I do think you deserve a belt. And I and I like if you have any tapes of like the winning arguments, uh, you know, for like the bonus for the Bullard Plus Plus members. You could. Mm-hmm. Did you ever do mic, literal mic drops where you'd like drop the mic as you finished and walked no. off? No. It had become, I think there was like some discourse at the time that like dropping the mics was really bad for them and it was rude to the AV staff. So people stopped mic dropping. So it's not wrong. <laughs> it's Gen Z. Everybody's just too considerate. Okay. Um, here's why we're actually here. We have a couple other articles that are off homelessness. I want to get in housing. I want to get to the very end. But um, I want to spend the bulk of it on this. You have a couple major Atlantic pieces this year. One was the obvious answer to homelessness. The other one was Colorado's ingenious idea for solving the housing crisis and why local governments hate it. I'm from Denver. I'm excited to talk about that one. But uh, JVL's a housing dork, so I, I want to let him kind of just take the lead here, and uh, we can get into you know all the different elements of this. So where do you want to start, JVL? So, I, I mean, I guess we should start with the common misconceptions people have, right? And Because if you just talk to somebody off the street and said, why is there homelessness? You'll get like, well, mental health problems and drugs and the moral fiber of the country. But the answer is just housing, right? Like there is an actual answer to this. And so I just would like to put a quarter in the machine and let you go. Sure. Yeah. So I will say just at the top, like, this is largely, I think, a problem of what people mean by causality. Like, what does it mean for someone to say the reason people are homeless is housing or the reason people are homeless is because of mental illness? Because if you are thinking about your own life, right, and, like, you can you can tell a story about your own life and you find yourself homeless at some point, you can go back and trace pivotal points at which perhaps if things had gone differently, you wouldn't be homeless. If you hadn't lost that job, if you hadn't started doing drugs, if you hadn't, you know, gotten in a fight with your roommate and then been kicked out, like there are things that you can point to. And for you, like that's a, like a reasonable causal story. And so when you interact with people, especially folks who are living in areas with high homelessness, you can see, okay, well, those people are using drugs. Or I talked to this person. He told me about how he got kicked out of his housing situation because he had, he went off his meds. And so like, 
those are true things. I think part of the problem is that is, is explaining that that can be true, even if that doesn't actually provide you a useful answer for policymakers. Because when policymakers are thinking about causality, they're not saying like, oh, what is Jerusalem's life story? They're saying, why is it that so many people are homeless? There's always a mental illness. There's always poverty. There are always people getting in fights with their roommates. There are always all these things happening. Why is the consequence of those types of things now increasingly that people end up on the streets rather than what we saw in previous generations, people would still remain housed? So I think that the important thing here is even with the fact that we were going to have a mental health issues in this country or drug abuse crisis in this country, and we're going to have poverty in this country for the foreseeable future until we uh, achieve a utopia, you know, we can still have all of those things without it meaning that people are condemned to living on the streets. And there's a lot of research now that, you know, a lot of it is correlative because it's, it's quite difficult to do causal research. But research that looks at places with high rates of um, drug abuse, high rates of mental illness, and says, are these the places where we see the most homelessness? When you look at a West Virginia, which has very high proportion of mental illness and drug abuse, you see very low rates of homelessness. When you look at a place like Los Angeles, a very low poverty city, San Francisco, very low poverty, you still see very high rates of homelessness. And you think uh, people say things like, oh, it's the weather, right? Like, oh, because California is so nice, people are moving there. We now have really good survey evidence showing that the vast majority of people, 90% of people who are homeless in California were in California at their last known address before they became homeless. And then you look at other places that have nice weather, right? Like you look at a, a Florida or a Texas, it's, these are warm places or in Arizona, which, you know, debatably no longer has the greatest weather. But like even in previous years, you know, when it was less, less hot in the summers, you didn't see high rates of homelessness at the level that you're seeing now. And the thing that is actually seen in area after area is that there are high housing costs in your area, then that means you're going to have high rates of homelessness. If there is low supply of very affordable housing at the very lowest ends, you're going to see high rates of homelessness. And the reason for this becomes really clear, right? Because I could imagine like a situation where you would kind of like lose your job, right? And then like, for some reason, no one can help you in your life. Like they can't give you um, rent anymore. And you're struggling with mental illness or something like that happens. And then I could imagine moving to a cheaper and cheaper housing options or like crashing with a friend or something like that until I got on my feet. But once you've exhausted that, right, like what used to happen is people would move into like a rooming house and it would be extremely dirt cheap or people would move into um, or, or people's families would have larger houses themselves. And so it was easy to put up your cousin in a spare room in a way where today it's like that person's asking to stay in your living room, which is a much bigger deal for you. And so all of these sorts of things are co uh, coming to a head. And what we really are seeing is that in places that don't have sufficient amounts of housing, you're just creating a lot of pressure at the lower end of the housing market. People who are poor, people who are lower income are much higher risk of becoming homeless than they ever have been. Just really quick before you get into the details, can we just step back just one thing, just a level set? I, I, that is true, right? Like there's the statement that, that homelessness is worse now is true. I just think it's always worth to just kind of go to the initial premise of the question, right? Like, because there's homelessness in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, right? And so it's measurably gotten worse everywhere or just in California? Yeah, the modern homelessness crisis begins in the 70s and 80s. Like before then, you did not see mass amounts of people living on the streets um, anywhere in the U.S. since the Great Depression. Like that was just not a thing that happened um, in in America. Um, and so it is really, really clear when we're talking about these like year over year um, shocking rates. Right now we have around 500,000 people on a given night are living in homelessness. Like that's just not normal. And when you go around these cities and you see like tent encampments, 
like those images are like straight out of like Great Depression books. Like it's not something that you saw happening in the 50s, in the 60s and 70s uh, in New York. So two two things. Um, first of all, just to, to put a point on how it doesn't even correlate with poverty, right? There are, I think it's Mississippi, you know, one of the poorest states in, in the country, but very low rates of homelessness. Because again, you have a large housing supply, right? You don't have housing problems. And what does Europe look like on this too? Because again, you know, all the American states are in roughly the same ballpark in terms of like the social welfare state. But that's category difference from from Europe. What does it look like in Europe with housing? Yeah. So on the poverty question, so um, the the book Homelessness is a Housing Problem by Greg Colburn and Clayton Page Alderns, they they note that like some urban areas with very high rates of poverty, places like Detroit or Miami-Dade County or Philadelphia have some of the lowest rates of homelessness in the country. And then places with low poverty rates like Santa Clara County or San Francisco or Boston have very high rates. So you're right. Like that correlation is just not something that we're seeing. I'm not very like extremely familiar with the data in other countries. I think it's really difficult to compare. As I've talked to homelessness researchers, it's difficult to compare sometimes across countries because people are measuring things very differently. Like, for instance, how you're measuring homelessness, does it count if you are don't have your own place, but you're crashing with someone temporarily? It just, it just looks very different. But like there is research in Canada, which obviously has a very different social welfare state than the U.S. does. And you see very similar things happening. Like you see the same exact correlations when we're talking about high housing costs and homelessness versus questions of poverty and social welfare states. Because I think that like people often like should think of it like this, right? Um, there's a really good analogy it's, uh, that homelessness researchers came up with called that refers to musical chairs, right? If you're watching kids play musical chairs, right, or you played yourself as a kid, someone takes a chair away and, you know, people run around and they try to get into the chairs. And usually the kids who are like faster or stronger or like more gregarious or like, you know, just like more willing to be slightly more aggressive or whatever it is, those will end up winning or they're just funnier with how they're doing it. They're not going to like annoy their peers or they're more well-liked or whatever. But by the end, you usually have like a large, strong kid who like has, or a fast kid who has ended up winning the game. And if one of the kids in the game had like a broken leg or was like very anxious, right? Would we say the reason that they lost the game was because they were anxious or would we say it's because there wasn't a chair available? And it's, I think it's like, the, that's the same thing here. Like you see like the distribution of inequality in who ends up getting a house in the U.S., right? But if there aren't enough houses, someone's going to be without a house. And musical chairs, if all 10 kids are very strong Olympians, one person is still going to win the game. Nine people will still end up without chairs. And so it's useful to look at, of course, like racial disparities with who ends up being homeless or, you know, disparities when it comes to mental illness and things like that, because you're like looking at who's vulnerable in society. But like there will always be vulnerabilities in society that just doesn't have to mean that there aren't homes available for people who are vulnerable. I like bad guys. So who are the bad, you know, I like to just know who the bad guys are. <laughs> yeah. So what's the problem? So who's the problem? Why haven't we built more houses? I just, at some level, I mean, I, I appreciate everything that you're writing and saying, but, and, and, you know, there's a lot of insight and nuance, but there's at the most basic level, it's kind of obvious, right? Like we need, you know, you, it was in the title of your article, right? Like uh, it, there is an obvious element to this. We need more houses. Why don't we have more? Particularly if you're looking at California, where I, I just moved from, like it seems so obvious. Like who who is who is preventing this from happening? Building more housing became more costly as we built out the suburbs, right? 
So before, it doesn't really impede much on people. People don't really care that much. Oh, you're going to build another subdivision like further out? Like, okay, like doesn't affect my life, really. Like, it's not near my neighborhood. It's just a similar kind of suburb as mine. It's probably similar kinds of people moving out there. Like, who cares, really? At some level, you get a bunch of people who start caring, right? One, because you can't build out forever for a few reasons. One is people will not commute for four hours. Most people will not commute for four hours to their jobs. People will instead just try to live closer and closer to their jobs. It's about a two-hour commuting zone around the urban core that is actually usually feasible for people to continue building housing that people will want to buy because, you know, no one wants to commute that far. And so um, there's that element. So like people start creating more and more pressure, right? If, if there's a growing population of people who are trying to live in an area, but there's no more land to build new houses for them, and no one is building more houses in the existing area, that means you're just bidding up the prices of the stock, right? That's just simple supply and demand. There's also a second group of people who start caring, obviously, which is environmentalists and conservationists who are worried about like the urban growth boundary zone. They don't want continued development out because they're rightly worried often that there's going to be too much development. It's going to encroach on natural beauty or it's going to encroach on environmental, like, you know, destruction of and, and create more emissions or things like that. So they're, they're worried then about just doing suburbanization forever, um, even if there is land available to do that. And so the obvious answer, right, is that you should make it easier for people to densify, right? Like it should be easier for someone to say like, okay, I'm subdividing my own house into a duplex. My sister's going to live next door with her family. I'm going to live here. We're happy with this arrangement because land is expensive now. And then we each have to pay half the cost and we can live together. Or a developer says, oh, I want to build like a 10 unit apartment building. But the thing is, unlike the suburban subdivision, those have often real and imagined costs for existing communities. When you're building a subdivision in a place that's largely uninhabited, there's not a lot of people to complain. But when you're building a new duplex or you're building an apartment building or you're building anything, um, like even like a backyard cottage for your mother-in-law to move into and help you with the kids, those things do have some real costs in the form of like construction can be annoying. It's irritating to have trucks on your street. Maybe there needs to be street closures if there's a lot of development happening on a whole block. And so those things are actually costly. And of course, like people are um, worried about the immediate impact of there being potentially more traffic or cars or, or or a competition for parking spaces on their street. And so like that always creates tension. And then there are imagined costs um, of like, oh, like what if the people who move here end up being types of people that I don't like? Um, I don't like renters. Apartment buildings usually are made up of renters. And so I don't like those kinds of people. I'm worried about the community character changing. That's a really common phrase. People have notions that the aesthetics are going to be uglier um, because they're afraid of change. But I think even broadly, most people don't really get involved in these fights. But politicians rightly recognize that it's better to be like small C conservative on issues of the built environment. Because if someone moved somewhere, they clearly thought it was like at least acceptable enough or they're happy enough with it to have moved to that place. And so any change comes with a lot of risk. And so any change to a built environment is really, really hard to get through. There are a lot of processes levied on that kind of question, whether it's trying to upzone an area, which means making it so it's not just for single family homes, but also for duplexes can possibly be built there. Um, and so making it possible for there to be higher density housing in an area. And because of all of these kind of frictions in the process, so now there's community input processes that are put in place to make sure that you're getting quest everyone gets to say their piece about whether or not they like a new duplex or something like that. Um, or there is a, a bunch of different fees that are tacked on to try and uh, uh, disincentivize certain types of building or to um, raise money for something else that are tacked on to the development process because developers are, are of course, easy villains to, to point to when you're trying to raise money. Um, and so for all these reasons, it becomes harder and harder 
harder to develop and it becomes harder and harder, more importantly, to develop starter homes or cheap homes. Because if you're a developer who's willing to go through that entire process, who's going to uh, hire all these lawyers or um, make a big bet on like a project that may not exist for a year or two years. I mean, we'll talk about my Colorado story. That's a that's a story of a developer making a very, very risky bet years in advance and losing. And they're losing lots and lots of money on that bet. If you're going to do that, the types of houses you have to build or the types of people you build for are people who are higher income because that's the only way it pencils out. Or you're like, I'm not going to do all this work for not a math for not having a massive payout. And so for all these reasons, then it becomes like it becomes not feasible for the private market, which 90% of us get our homes from to actually provide the types of housing that we most need. Now, we're in the bulwark, not at Vox, so I think we can just be a little bit more blunt about this. So what you're saying is the developers are the good guys, and the people no. are the bad guys. The people are the bad guys. The people are always the bad guys. Obviously, like I think there are clearly villains in this story where there are people who are overtly terrible. Well, you have like NIMBYs, like not in my backyard activists who will say yeah, sure. unbelievably crazy things. But I think yeah. the real problem here is how people don't really, I, and this is why it's so difficult of a problem to, to convey to folks is it's really, the whole system is built around maintaining the current housing stock as it is and making any change really difficult to the point where like the villain does not even have to act most of the time. Like they're right. just completely hidden. Like they don't have to like show up and say, no, don't build this. They've already priced out the ability for any developer to build anything. And I mean, I'm not even just talking about private market developers. I mean, this is a complaint of affordable housing developers, of nonprofit developers. These are folks who are not making money who are saying, I mean, Los Angeles is just a key example of this. So like they passed this nearly billion dollar bond measure, Prop Triple H, um, I think 2015 or 2016. And the, and the people are just like, yeah, like we'll spend a billion dollars trying to build affordable housing. We don't want to see this kind of homelessness on our streets. Like, please build this housing so that, you know, people can, you know, not be in the area. We feel bad about this. And, you know, affordable housing developers start attempting to find sites to build or convert buildings into permanent supportive housing. And they receive just insane levels of opposition. Like everywhere they go, people just show up and say like, no, not here. And no, not here. Not realizing that when that's the process, like it drives up costs. It takes a lot more time. So you're wasting a bunch of that billion dollars just on those process costs. And that's why it's so expensive to build like an apartment in San Francisco is it's not really because the materials when you cross from San Francisco to, uh, you know, like Idaho are somehow like that much more expensive. It's largely because the regulatory costs are so high, the time costs are so high, and then people just learn not to deal with it. And so you get this really strange, like, response from the market where it's not even worth it to try to build a bunch of housing in expensive areas of town. And then there is the correct critique often from people who are living in high development areas that are less politically powerful that like, hey, like, why is the rich area not building anything at all? Um, right. And it becomes then, a, a, you know, another fight uh, uh, within cities over over fairness on that question. So is density the answer or is like dispersal the answer? Because it, it seems to me that like the only real hope over the medium term is like telecommuting, you know, basically the untethering of geography from jobs. Because if if that can happen at scale, that can relieve pressure everywhere within the system. Because, like, in a weird way, we have, like, you know, it's housing is like the electrical grid in that, like, you have local nodes where things are harder or, or less hard, um, but we are all in the same large system. Yeah, so... 
I think that it's definitely true that Zoom and remote work and permanently remote work in particular has like the ability to relieve a lot of pressure in these high cost of living cities. I think there's just it's too early to tell like how sticky that can be if there are going to be productivity costs to remote permanent remote work, especially from companies that are like startups or if you're something that you're trying to build something in person together. Like it really, I think, depends on the industry you're in and the type of work you're doing. And, you know, so I think it'll take at least a decade to see like where industries sort of settle on this question. But it has remade a lot of um, American geography. I mean, we saw this, like the distribution of these workers, even though it wasn't really that many people who were able to go permanently remote for enough time to move out of the area. Like that is part of the, that demand increase in places like Nashville or towns in Montana, or even in Colorado, of course, um, other places that are, have like a bunch of amenities um, that you would want to enjoy, whether it's the outdoors or just cheaper housing or nice schools, or you're closer to your family or friends or whatever, like all those things, like people were able to buy into that. And that increases prices as well. Of course, you have this increased demand. I think that like this question of dispersal versus density. Oh, sorry, Tim. You know, I just want to follow up just on that really point. quick, Then you can get to the dispersal. But like, is any place that is really sought after nailing this? Like, is it possible? I, I just, I say this because like, I just moved from Oakland to New Orleans, right? And New Orleans, like the neighborhoods, I want to live in the city, right? Like I want to live in New Orleans. And so people are like, oh man, it must be really cheaper. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of cheaper on the margins in California, but still in the areas where you want to live in New Orleans, it's not that much cheaper. It's not like moving to rural Missouri, like by compared to Oakland, right? And that's true in Denver. My, one of my buddies moved to Boise recently, we moved out of DC. And, and, I, and he was showing me the houses he was looking at in Boise and the cool neighborhoods in Boise. And I was like, that's not that much different than Oakland, really. And so it's kind of a two-part question, right? Like are people, is there any place that's like, oh, we're nailing it? Or is it impossible to control housing prices in a, in a very mobile society in the, you know, most sought after locations there will always be places that are more attractive than other places which means that there's gonna be more demand for them that's obviously true like you know there's limited beachfront property if there's a beautiful lake there's just like not an, there's not you know infinite numbers of spots like if you want to live in Vail, that's going to be expensive and then maybe there has to be a different way of deciding how to distribute that space other than just the price mechanism if that's not the only thing you care about but broadly right like montana for instance just uh, as attempting this and i think this is a really important case study I think really the only way you solve this problem is before it gets as bad as a place like California. You have to fix the political dynamics and like fix this, like the the way in which development actually happens and make sure that it's fair and make sure that you're actually planning for growth in some way before um, you get to like a New York level or something like that. Because once you're there, there are so many entrenched interests that every single win while on the margins, like that's good. Like if 10,000 more people can live where they want to live, like that's obviously a huge win, but it's not really like structural. You're not going to expect like rents to like massively come down in New York City anytime soon or Manhattan anytime soon. But this question of like, yeah, like I think this is something people really don't get, which I, I'm really glad you brought up to him because people say like, oh, like why don't people just move to like a Chicago or why don't they just move to like the Denver and you like go to these places, right? And like when you look at the citywide housing stock, there's tons of even vacant units in Chicago or Baltimore. But then when you look at the very neighborhoods that you're talking about, that maybe that someone who is in the position to move has that kind of remote job. These are already people who are, you know, high income, 
people who have really good jobs. Maybe they have kids and they want to have a really good school system nearby and they want different sorts of amenities. Maybe they have like, they want three or four parking spots like whatever it is. Those are like limited spots in an area. And we're not allowing for more housing to be built there because I think there's, there's this idea that like it is, you're pitting like these single family homes against these other types of homes. But what people don't realize is that when you don't build things like duplexes or apartment buildings, you're forcing every single one of those high income people to live in a single family home, whether they want to or not. And I think that's taking up room for other people who may want that. And there are very real examples of this. Most importantly is like the life cycle example, right? When people, you know, have their kids and then they're older, they may want to stay in their community, but they want to downsize. Like AARP has become a big um, player now on the national level when talking about increasing housing supply, because you have all these seniors all over the country who are locked into these homes. Um, They can't even access the second floor anymore because it's not accessible to them. But moving means leaving their community entirely because there's like no smaller housing available for them. And there's no new housing that's ADA compliant because we haven't built anything new in these areas in decades. And so this becomes a problem where the very same people who were just 15 years ago benefiting from the lack of new housing are now the people who are being harmed by their own preferences. And so this happens in that way, but it also happens in the way of like, you know, here in DC, for instance, I have twice in my life now lived in formerly townhome or brownstones that have been converted into um, multiple apartments. And so like, there's like, right now I'm in a four unit apartment building that was used to be like a townhouse that would probably have been a family townhouse and wouldn't have been that expensive. A middle-class family would have been able to buy that. But because there aren't enough housing options in the area that I wanted to live in, like all of the buildings happening somewhere else where I didn't want to be in that neighborhood, I come look in this neighborhood and what, I, what they like looking for my demand, they have converted this home, which used to be a family home for people like me who are like yuppies. And so I think that's something too that people don't realize is that if you don't build enough, the only people who are going to get what they want are rich people or people who have, who are richer than the median person in their area. And everyone else will have to just deal with whatever's left behind. And no one over the course of their whole life remains at the top. Like at some point you'll want your kids living near you. They can't afford it. At some point, you'll want to live near, uh, you know, your friends will want to come stay with you, but it's too expensive because you're not allowed to have hotels in the area. You've banned Airbnbs. Like, there's just things that people don't think about in these moments when they're opposing change that will really affect their quality of life. I'm glad you mentioned schools. Uh, this is, I don't know if you you read it. This is from her earlier life before she was a politician. Elizabeth Warren wrote a book called The Two-Income Trap. It was amazing, like a weirdly conservative book in in its own way. And she was talking about uh, bankruptcy and financial distress and looking at, which is in a weird way, a little bit like homelessness in that, you know, what, why did people go bankrupt? And the answer is a housing cost, right? Housing cost is what pushed people into bankruptcy. And a, one of the things she talked about was the tethering between schools and housing location. So being one of the other big drivers of housing costs, aside from location to uh, employment, right? So the closer you are to more jobs, the more valuable the housing is. And the closer you are to good schools, the more valuable the housing is. And one of her proposed solutions, which I think she's backed off of since then, was severing the tie and basically making it so that you could live in a lower cost town with bad schools, but send your kids to the good schools of the the town next door to you. Again, this is like 20 years ago. But does the school I don't think she tie, has that position anymore. I'm just I just I don't I don't know that she does, but I don't know that she's totally backed away from it either. Does the schooling part of this play any role in again, like driving up the the concentration of 
costs in places for people, which, again, is in nobody's interest, right? This is like a weird, you know, I could go full bullshit here with like how the problem here is actually it's not even the people, it's the system um, because we all lose. But uh, schools, please go. Yeah. So the idea of making it so that, you know, we're like, for instance, like equalizing um, school funding across an area. So instead of just, you know, I pay for the schools that are in my area based through property taxes, all the property taxes of a state or something would go into one pot and then get dispersed evenly everywhere. This is something that's, that's been tried. I haven't like looked into the data or anything. Um, my understanding is that in places where it is tried, it ends up, you know, people will just raise private funds uh, like through PTAs or through other means. And then like, they end up not equalizing funding. So you get the exact same problem again. So it doesn't really do that much. stuff. I mean, it's good if it like, you know, obviously gets money towards like low performing schools, but I don't think it solves the inequality problem we're talking about here. So I don't think any place has like truly solved this problem enough to like look at the data and see if it would, it would do a lot, but you're definitely right. Like, of course, a big amenity people are looking for are um, good public schools in areas. Sometimes it's literal, right? Like you're literally looking for a good school for your kids. But I think we often like, like even when people are talking about like their property values or things like that, Few people are like regularly, I mean, now it's more common, but few people are regularly checking their property values and seeing like, well, what do I think the exact change would be if this change happened in my community? We're talking about a vibe of what it means to like live in a nice place. Like there are good schools in the area. Like people will say that to me and they like don't have kids. And like, I don't even know why they're saying that. Like, and it's because it's like, it means something else. It means something broader about the type of place you live in. You can like imagine the sort of like Brady Bunch like type of thing that we're, we're looking at. And the reason that's important is because I think that it's really important to drill down exactly what people mean there to try to make sure you're maintaining that level of feel, people feeling good about a place and also to de-link it from things that are like obviously incorrect, right? Like it's like, I think people used to say that and it used to be very blatantly racist. People would say that and they meant like, you know, I really don't want non-white people living here anymore. I feel it's less and less common. And I think that's like not actually the people, people say, something like, oh, I'd be happy to have black or Asian neighbors if they can like pay into it. Um, so I think it's often like more of like a, a class thing that they don't want like lower income people living there or they don't want like loud things in their area or they're mostly, I think, worried about parking um, and they're worried about what's going to happen to congestion in their area. And I think you have to actually like systemically address those concerns very clearly and then just say, once we've addressed like the legitimate material concerns you're worried about, like how will you deal with people being loud? Like we have like nuisance laws. Like <laughs> that's that's like a, that's a way of, of dealing with that and we should make sure people can get that. But also sometimes you have loud neighbors and that's just kind of like life and like the government's not gonna come around to try to arrest everyone because they're being loud uh-huh. in your neighborhood. <laughs> and so I think I think the big problem here, and I think what why I'm tying this to schools here is just like you have to actually find the things that are really important for a populace to be happy, make sure you're not ruining those things, and then just say, we're ignoring the other random concerns being levied at us because we understand that when you actually have a growing economy, people could have more affordable housing, they will be happy at the end of the day. And we know this because people literally were happy when that was the, um, when that was the case, when things were changing in, you know, <laughs> in the early aughts, when things were booming, there's a lot of change. There's a lot of development, a lot of growth in places like Denver. They were begging for this kind of growth. You know what I mean? They would, they would never have imagined the type of changes we're seeing now in the city. And that was the type of thing that leaders were 
asking for. Cities ask for growth until they have it and then they haven't planned for it and they can't deal with the political consequences and then all of a sudden they're against it. And it's a very difficult dynamic. That's a very profound point. Yeah. I want to go through a couple of the other bad guys. I know that I want to get to Denver. Uh, the left the left has a couple of particular bad guys. One of late that's very in vogue you wrote about is the hedge funds. The hedge funds are doing this. It's all the hedge funds' fault. They're buying up houses. There are actually plenty of houses, but they're, they're running up the prices, et cetera. So I want you to hear about that. There's another lefty critique that has resonated with me a little more than that one that you just kind of alluded to, which is the Airbnb. We're going to blame Airbnb. I do wonder about that in New Orleans, right? I, it, can't be, it can't be helping the housing stock in New Orleans. And so, you know, if this is really just a supply thing, I've been more sympathetic to the Airbnb critique. So I just, I, I'd like to hear your opinion on both of those. Yeah. So institutional investors, so whether we're talking about like hedge funds or private equity or whatever, things like Blackstone, these firms have in the housing space, like earned a bad name for like their legitimate reasons, which is, you know, they've been shown to be higher serial evictors. Um, they are, there's, there's been some studies shown that some of these companies are are treating their tenants like violating local laws on, you know, qual- housing quality to a level that you don't see from other landlords that are um, renting to low-income populations. So because there's like a legitimate concern, like a legitimate critique on that end, when we saw higher investor activity in the pandemic, people ported that anger for legitimate things onto something that which doesn't make sense, which is that these investors are actually causing the price appreciation to occur. And I want to be very clear here, like institutional investors, these very massive investors, mega investors own a almost negligible supply of housing in the United States. Like it would not make sense to say that this actor could be driving home price appreciation because home price appreciation was happening everywhere. They're not even buying houses in like not even like a quarter of the existing like neighborhoods in America. Like it's just not reasonable. It doesn't make sense. When you look at smaller markets, right, and people often will say like, okay, maybe that's true, but what about in smaller markets? Are they buying a bunch of homes and are they then getting like, you know, enough market share in order to push up prices? And, you know, I think this is like really difficult to like allege on the side of people who are saying it's happening for a few reasons. One is that people who are like these investors that are buying these homes are doing a few things with them. They're either flipping them and selling them again. So that means that like they're just, they're just putting them back into the market. So you're not like taking homes off the market or they are renting them out, which means that maybe you're reducing the supply of homes to buy, but then you're increasing the supply of homes to rent. So like, I don't know, like if we should be making the calculation that it's always better to have homes available to buy, given that like people who are renting are usually like worse off and don't have those kinds of options um, themselves. Um, The other thing that could be happening, which is, which is what people often allege that you're getting, they're getting enough of a market share that they are actually like you know, a big enough player to raise prices beyond the mar- higher than the market rate, and that that is actually the way they're doing this. I would need to see evidence that like anyone has done this across the market. I think it's quite difficult to prove this. I think Atlanta is like a place where you see a lot of institutional investor activity, and even then, I haven't seen any compelling evidence that they have like been able to collude to the level of raising prices because it's actually quite hard to like get all the homes in a market, right? Because getting all the homes in a market doesn't just mean like owning like one subdivision. It means like if I'm looking for a home, I'm looking for a home near good schools within 15 minute drive of my like, you know, job and like maybe near some like nice, you know, amenities for my kids or something like that. And like, that's just like a bunch of homes in an area. Like, it's not like you can just know this as an investor and buy those up. And also when you look at their activity, they're often looking at, um, homes in, uh, you know, in, in more distressed communities. Like what, during the institutional investor was kind of invented after the Great Recession. And what they did is they bought a bunch of homes that were 
really dirt cheap and they created sort of a floor for home prices and then they flipped them and sold them again. Again, like there are very real critiques to make about like how they're treating their tenants. And if there's a problem of, you know, buying homes that we would rather have originally go to people versus these institutional investors first. And there's ways to ensure that when the government is trying to sell homes, it tries to prioritize people before it goes to these investors. But I think the large critique I have is like the dominance of this discussion. Like instead of it being focused on any of these things is, is really just a reflection that people don't want to talk about what's really causing home price appreciation because that implicates all of us. Like I make the bullshit critique, JBL. Like it is like, it implicates all of us. Like we're all involved in the system of like not allowing new development of buying homes in areas and then excluding other people from them. Um, and that is like a bigger critique. It's a bigger problem. It's a much harder problem to solve. And it also implicates a bunch of, you know, things that we usually like, whether it's environmental laws or it's like local government or it's your neighbor next door who you usually think is really helpful because he helps you get trash pickup. But like also he's the guy who's making it so that no one can um, put low income housing in your community. Like it's a very difficult problem like to solve. Okay. This is everything. But Airbnb really quick, just Airbnb. Oh, Airbnb. What's your- Airbnb definitely is reducing the supply of housing. Again, it's I think the question is just like by how much it's a smaller amount, but it is right. showing to reduce supply of housing in these areas. And if people want to ban Airbnb and like short term rentals and like whatever in, in areas to increase the housing supply stock, sure, I would love to see like a real commitment to that desire and like also upzone those areas. But I will yes. say this is like if you're talking about like places like New Orleans or in other places like New York that are like you have a high tourism industry, like usually there's a desire for these types of rentals because hotels are either segregated to one part of town. So like in New York, for instance, like so many of the hotels are just kind of like near Times Square where a lot of people don't want to be and they want to like have a hotel that's maybe closer to Brooklyn or whatever it is. And there are like fewer of these hotels that that are dispersed in... Exactly. Those so other like, neighborhoods, right? Like it yeah. helps us. People are staying, like in New Orleans, like if people are staying in the Marigny or the Bywater, then the restaurants there are going to do a little mm-hmm. better, right? So there's, okay. So, well, yeah. I wanted Airbnb to be bad guys. The bad guys, the people. Let's. This goes to your Denver article. Um, I'm from Denver. Colorado's ingenious idea for solving the housing crisis. The short of this, uh, this kind of connects with our last, a, a connection of our last two Sunday shows. We had Amanda Shires on last week talking about how much she hates golf. Uh, in this case, uh, we are going to repurpose a golf course for housing. And, and it went up to about initiative. You, you explained the situation, but it seems smart. A lot of, lot of land, a lot of area. Denver, they need housing badly, badly, badly. I, I mean, it's nearing San Francisco levels at this point. And, and the voters voted that down. So, so talk mm-hmm. about what you found there in that, in that instance. Yeah, so it was a 155-acre property, um, really big property to be in like a downtown area and undeveloped. It was a golf course. It's defunct. It was in operation I think like in like the nineties, but has not really, I think maybe it was like running for a little bit in the, in the two thousands too. but like, again, it's defunct now for a few yeah, years. I remember it. I was like, I, I graduated high school in 2000. So it was around then it was around, yeah. but like, it's been a while. We're getting, I'm getting yeah. old. Yeah. In the late nineties, they Denver paid the owners of the golf course in order to put a conservation easement on the property. And this easement basically just said like, um, I mean, it's cont- it was contested in court now, but from a plain text reading, it basically says you have to keep this, so that an 18-hole golf course can still be operating on it. So, like, anything you do to develop it can't impede the ability for a golf course to be operational. Could it be um, an 18-hole mini golf course? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we have, I'm sure there is some sort of, like, legal uh, question there that can be answered by uh, – but that is going to be answered by the course because now the, the developer is trying to build, like, top golf on it maybe. And so they have to decide whether top golf actually <laughs> qualifies. AI golf. Yeah, we have, an, we have an 18-hole course, you know? <laughs> 
Um, it's just you in a room with like a yeah, VR headset. Right. Um, so yeah, so there, there's, so they put this conservation easement on it, and then like 20 years later, it's then the, the Westside Partners buys this like golf course, um, which is a development firm in Denver. Basically, they decide they were, they're going to keep 50 acres of it for like housing. They're going to build a bunch of kinds of housing. I think like 3,000 units. Like some of it's going to be senior. Most of it's market rate, but there's some senior housing. There's some affordable housing. There's some home um, home ownership uh, opportunities for like locals. They're also doing a bunch of stuff. Like on the other 100 acres, they're preserving it as open space. They're like turning it into a park. Like it's not a park right now. Like walked around it. It's like very dead. Um, but if they're going to turn it into a park, all the sorts of things. And then um, – yeah. And then basically there was a big citywide fight over it where a bunch of people were saying like, you know, we don't want this developed. Um, and they put it on the citywide ballot to say like, do we think that there should be, um, we should allow this development to go forward. And the voters of Denver pretty decisively said, no, I think it's like a 20 point margin or something. It's 59-41. Um, yeah. Insane. It's pretty big. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is one of those things where, you know, I would walk around even like the immediate vicinity of the area, like the immediate vicinity where there are signs everywhere, where clearly for years there's like been canvassers on both sides of this coming around. And I'd ask people just like questions. And often people had like very little opinion about it. Like when they hear about it, people are more primed, of course, as we just talked about when we think about how people really don't like growth once they have it. People are very primed to be anti-development. And I think this is like the big thing to understand about this is just that like, you can't guarantee who's getting a benefit when you're going to build something. It's like hypothetical. It's like maybe someone from the neighborhood could live there. Like maybe there could be a some sort of benefit to the community, but like maybe it could be the most annoying person on the planet has moved next door. Maybe it's a bunch of yuppies that you really, really hate and they're like tech people in Denver and they're making your community worse. Like you have like no idea who's going to live there versus if the city wants to turn that into any other sort of benefit, right? You know directly who's getting that benefit. If you just turned it into a park, you're like, I live here, that's going to be a park and I'm going to go walk my dog in that park. And so that's the real problem with housing is that because you can't just say in advance, like, here are the 3,000 people who will live here and they'll live here forever and, like, they will never move. You can't make that kind of promise to a community. And that level of uncertainty, when you give people a choice, they, they choose no. Sick. Um, I want to close. Um, I have one more housing question. Then I want to close with I want to get you two together on, on the subject of natalism, which I know people love. We've had a Yimby power hour, but we need to end on natalism. JVL is very excited about this. I don't know. I look at the face I'm getting. But I do want to I like the one I have one more homelessness question that like has vexed me. And any ideas on this are welcome. So in Oakland, we had an encampment near us. And in my neighborhood here in, in New Orleans, there used to be projects here. And they, they've torn them down and replaced them with actually some pretty nice looking, you know, kind of multifamily units, houses. And in a bull situation, like crime is an underlying conversation here, right? That where it's like, if you move people from when it came into these big low income housing units, a lot of times that's going to engender crime, right? Like in projects that engender crime, whereas, you know, building these smaller units for, you know, that people can move into that you know maybe looks a little bit better and maybe helps with the crime problem a little bit but there aren't as many units right and so it's just this balance and i'm just like wondering if you have any deep thoughts on the on the question of of how to deal with these kind of encampments and how to deal with you know the problem where we have the scale of you know, it, it, we'd love to build a million units tomorrow. We're not going to. What are we going to do in the meantime? Can I just broaden the question here? Please, I mean, since yeah. this is going to be our last question um, on housing stuff. So what what are your lessons from the past failures to grapple with this? So, I mean, rent control, which was a thing tried by cities in the 60s and 70s, 
and then massive public housing projects like we saw, you know, Cabrini Green in Chicago and all across New York City, which I think people now think were failures. And I think people now think that rent control is a failure, but maybe not. So anyway, that's I just want to broaden that for yeah, the we last took down and that connects the housing project yep. question connects. And they took the New Orleans got rid of housing projects on this point. But anyway. Yeah. I don't think that higher density is really the problem people have when they think about crime. I mean, there have been so many projects where like, it's like either it's a nice building and it has a lot of housing and like, it's obviously one that's going to cater to high income people and people are against it. And there's also small buildings and they're going to be for permanent supportive housing. But even if they're small, like people aren't for it. So I think that like, I mean, there's a level of scale people get scared of, obviously, if it's so out of scale with their existing neighborhood, but I don't think there's like a a magic number. And also because most density efforts are just trying to get to like missing middle housing. It's like things like townhomes or like a fourplex, like things that when you walk down the street, like you honestly probably wouldn't even notice at first glance, we're not single family homes. Like in Nashville, they'd done a bunch of this. And I, I like walked around neighborhoods with my friends and like, we were like just pointing out the distinctions of like, <laughs> uh, of like, of like the, the quadplexes or whatever, but they're usually like not obvious. They can look like single family homes. So anyway, I think that it's not really that, that that's the problem. But when we think about crime in either the public housing question or in the encampment question, I think there's like, obviously people want to get those people out of homelessness and they are worried about bringing criminal activity to their homes. But I think the the really important thing here is like the vast majority of people are not committing crimes who are poor, right? Like this was like a thing that we had to do, like causing advocates had to do during like the desegregation efforts for race is like people like, well, what if they act to bring crime? Like a lot of black people commit crimes all the time. And it's just like, like a lot of, most of them do not commit crimes. Just like most white people are not committing crimes. And like, you had to sort of like acclimate people to that realization. I think like the real challenge for housing integration in the 21st century is making that argument clearly for class. Like, yes, of course, there's like more crime happening in like high poverty neighborhoods um, for a variety of reasons. And we see that integration is like a good cure for like reducing criminal activity. We see that when young kids move into higher income neighborhoods, like this is really great research from Rod Chetty and his folks at Harvard. When you have that sort of integration happening at a social level, at the neighborhood level, at the school level, those kids, very low rates of incarceration, very low rates of interacting with the police, high rates of graduating uh, high school, much higher rates of attending college, of getting a high income job later on in life. Like we know how to fix this, but there are of course going to be a lot of costs in the medium term and the short term of integration. It's costly when different types of people live next to each other. Like that creates friction, whether it's some communities like really loud block parties outside. Some people think that that's a cost in the neighborhood. And then there are arguments over that. And like, that's, you know, like a normal thing that happens when different kind of cultures live next to each other. And we have decided at the, at the, at the U.S. for most of our history that like, we're going to try to still have that integration because we see the benefits of it are really, really good for creating new ideas. I mean, that is why places like New York, places like Los Angeles, places like San Francisco have been so dominant when you compare them to other major cities in the world is because you have that level of social and impersonal and cultural integration and we overcome those costs. And so I'm not going to pretend here like there's going to be like no friction at all when you have people moving in together who come from very different backgrounds, it would be ludicrous to pretend like that's not going to happen. And there should be crime funding measures. And I'm like, obviously very supportive of reducing as many guns as possible to make sure that those kinds of frictions don't lead to literal death when, when they do happen. But, you know, I don't think that like, 
you know, we can possibly pretend that like this level of social exclusion is not also creating actually more crime on aggregate, even if it's saving a few people in the interior. Um, and at this point, the question is, are we going to abandon our whole cities or are we going to say like, we need to actually deal with this problem and accept that, that comes with some level of friction? So to sum up, rent control, no. Blaming the hedge funds, no. To play Yimbies, yes, right? Zoom work, maybe. Some Airbnb rules, maybe. But building lots of houses is really kind of it. Like, that's yeah. just kind of it, right? I mean, there's nothing, yeah. there's no other. We can go through all of the other complaints and all of the other bad guys, but like, it just comes down to. Adam Smith. Like that's really that's really the end. <laughs> well, of this. I will say this too, though. On top of that, is that the new public housing that people are trying to build, Montgomery County, Maryland, which I grew up in, has attempted this. It's mixed income housing. It's not just for poor people. It looks exactly like the new types of housing. It's being financed in very interesting ways, so that like local governments can actually like can have enough money to actually finance these like large um, units, and they remain affordable for like at different you know income levels. Obviously, you have people who are higher income and lower income, middle income, but that sort of thing is a new thing that people are trying i don't think it's like a solution in and of itself like you're like as i said earlier like 90 percent of us are getting our homes in the private market that's just not going to move fast enough but if we're talking about like what small governments can do in addition to upzoning like putting money into a public developer seems great i love that we also have ballot initiatives no and environmental and environmental sequel <laughs> yes, on the no, i'm against on the no all list. ballot initiatives <laughs> <laughs> no don't let the people decide okay we know what is better for you all right last thing i gotta let you go we're time over but yet you wrote something about a ba- about we had a baby bump during the pandemic jvl wrote the book about how we need to be concerned about the lack of babies that we're having so do we have good news? Is there any good? Is there good news? Are more are more babies coming, or was that just like people were bored and humping for a couple months? Um, I uh, I haven't looked at the data since I wrote this article, so that was in um, I think end of twenty twenty two when I was looking at this stuff. Like basically, what happened during the pandemic is usually when there's kind of a financial shock, people like don't have kids because they're like worried about being able to afford them. They're like, oh, let's just pause for a second and see what happens. And the COVID-19 pandemic was, of course, a major shock. People had no idea what was going to happen. But similarly in other places, right, like with housing market, everyone thought there was going to be a housing market crash at the beginning or, um, you know, labor market. Everyone thought it would be like a massive, like, you know, a complete labor crash that would be like dominate for ages. Um, you saw this very different thing happening largely because of remote work where you had a certain class of worker that was actually able to maintain if not increase their standard of living because they were having two full salaries but they were also both staying home and maybe they even were able to move to a larger home because they wanted more office space or it was you know now it's the time to move because we have all this time we're at home and so because of this you had lots and lots of people who otherwise would who thought they were going to be in a really bad financial situation and of course there were a lot of people who were but not like this group that i'm talking about and because these folks were were able to have this time and space and money they you had a lot of money um, in order to move to a larger house that actually made the life cycle decision to have a kid much easier because often I think that people think people get married, decide to have a kid and then buy a big house. But often it's like you get into the house and you're like, oh, there's room for a kid here. And then you decide to have the kid. And so I think the housing market actually kind of pushed a lot of people into having um, kids uh, maybe a little bit earlier than they were expecting to, given the like economic outlook. But the baby bump itself was like pretty notable. I mean, it was... Um, I think 46,000 more kids is what the paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research showed. 46,000 more kids than were expected, which is, you know, it's a lot of kids. JVL, 
Team virus. So many kids. Team yeah. virus, JVL. I mean, I get, mm-hmm. it's not going to last. Again, team virus working out for you? It's not going to last. This is, I mean, the, you know, the 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 large driver in the American fertility trends is the collapse of fertility in Hispanic American women. And there just has been no evidence that that over the long haul is going to reverse. And as they continue regressing to the mean, which is where white Americans and African Americans are, you know, we're going to settle down at like one seven, one point seven or something like that. And that's not that's not great, Bob. Again, the, the problem with declining fertility is not the number of people. The problem is the age structure of the existing population. And as your fertility rate gets lower, you wind up inverting. And over the, over time, you wind up with a lot more old people than young people. And that creates all sorts of economic dislocations. And you should uh, have just a maximum voting age, and then there won't be a problem. Yeah. Well, okay. now you're just a, speaking yeah. right to my heart. I was just about to say, until you start going anti-democracy, I just had to say, with President Jerusalem, you know, <laughs> we'll have all the houses, so people will know they'll have room for the crib. We'll have immigration, so there'll be young people come, young dynamic people coming into the country. We'll be fixing the pyramid. It's only 20 years from now. Hopefully our democracy the survives. The neoliberal administration of our dreams. <laughs> That's like the clip they would play that would destroy any nascent political campaign. Campaign of yours? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. I've destroyed no, Sarah I'm Longwell's. No, running for office. <laughs> <laughs> Jerusalem Demsis, thank you so much. Your stuff is so good. Um, let's do this again sometime. I really appreciate all your time. Uh, we'll see you back here on Wednesday with Sarah and JVL going over the usual Donald Trump parade of horribles. See you then. Thanks, guys.